All right, good afternoon, everybody. I'm uh, turning 70 this year, so I'm taking the liberty of sitting uh, rather than standing again. And uh, we're talking about how to keep leading when life feels hard. And life in general does often feel hard without leading. But when you start leading, then you get extra difficulties along the way. Part, if, the, if for no other reason, because when you're leading, you're kind of sharing in not just your life difficulties, but the life difficulties of the people you're leading. And so that, that can become very draining. Uh, when I look back, the people that were my peers in leading when I began 40 years ago, less than half of them made it to this point in the journey. Um, less than half. Most of them either quit, got discouraged, left, ran away, crashed and burned. And a couple of them had a good excuse. They died and went to be with Jesus. <laughs> but uh, the rest of them, you know, th didn't make it to the end. And one of the things I am always saying to young leaders, the first rule of leadership is show up. But the second rule of leadership is be there at the end. And what I mean is the end of your life. The last 20 years of ministry will be the most fruitful time of your entire life. That's when all the goodies happen. That's when you see the greatest amount of fruit. That's when uh, you have the greatest influence. You know, your hair turns white and everybody thinks you know something. <laughs> and so, but you have to get there. You have to get there. Some of you, of course, your hair doesn't turn white, it just falls out. <laughs> that also counts. People also tend to think that you learned something. If nothing else, you've had to check your vanity at the door. So I'm very interested and very concerned that you make it. When I'm talking to young leaders, and really even middle-aged leaders, I'm all the time thinking not just about what are they doing now and how are they doing now, but how do we get them to the good part that's coming, to the really wonderful part where they can have the greatest amount of fruitfulness and influence in the kingdom of God. And so I want you, it, you to be able to keep leading. And some of the recent uh, uh, polls are showing that some, something like nearly 40% of all the senior pastors in America have been thinking about quitting in the last two years. Which is huge, that's quite large. And it's, uh, it's, I think, of course, illustrative of the pressures that people are under, uh, the difficulties of going through a great natural disaster. I, I think it's important to just kind of, you need to kind of keep in your mind, we have been through one of the greatest natural disasters in a century. That, unlike almost any other natural disaster, affected the whole world. And... There's a certain extent to which we're all traumatized by that. You know, and even this week, you know, we're like giddy 
because it feels like we've got we've escaped. You know, we, we actually get to be together again. Uh, but there's a trauma underneath that, and the people you're leading, they're traumatized. So life is hard, and it's still hard for lots of people right now. So how do you keep leading when life gets hard? Um, the first thing, uh, I'm going to give you a list if you want to take notes of nine things how to keep leading when life gets hard. The first thing is share the burden. Like, don't be alone. Share the burden. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, we are meant to share each other's burdens, and burdens come. The, that verse in itself assumes that there will be burdens, there will be difficulties, there will be hard times. But if we share them with one another, we can help one another get through. I led Vineyard USA's church planning effort for 25 years. During that time, our team, which was a huge team of about 100 leaders, helped train, you know, find, train, catalyze, and release something like 750 churches. And one thing characterized almost every church that did not survive, and that was they never asked anybody for help. They never asked for help. They never got on the phone and said, I'm in trouble. Can you help me out? They never called anybody and asked for advice. And that is the universal characteristic of those who didn't make it. Don't be like that. The phones work. We even have Zoom. You know, uh, you, you can see somebody, you know. You need to just determine that, you know, that I think there's this, there's this dynamic where, you know, when you're having a hard time, you feel embarrassed about having a hard time, and then you don't want to tell anybody. We need to have a strong enough relationship with each other that we don't feel embarrassed about saying that we had a hard time. Um, you need to have that, you need to have some people that you can just say, I'm having a rough go right now. This, thus and thus and thus and thus happened, will you pray for me? Or where somebody will like actually get in their car and drive to you and come see you because you need help. You need somebody to share the burden with. And that's one of the main reasons why it's important to be part of a, a tribe of churches because part of our purpose here in being a tribe is that we can do that with each other as well as with your team. The worst thing is to be alone. If you, <clears throat> if you will, every time you have difficulty, the slightest difficulty, ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you, ask them for advice, ask them if you can come see them, you know, do whatever it takes, you will survive. And you will not just survive, you'll prosper. You will do well. It's sort of like, um, people ask me all the time, you know, what's the big characteristic of the ones that fail? And the biggest one is they, they never did it. They never asked for help. They just isolated themselves and then, you know, blamed everybody else that we didn't help them. 
Um, so get on the phone if when you need it, and you will need help, and ask for help. So that's number one. Number two, surround yourself with prayer. And I would point to you to two scriptures that are very important and I think often highly neglected. Romans 15, 30 to 31, Apostle Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Okay, the Apostle Paul himself does not try to get through this by himself. He asks these people to pray for him. And he says, pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. And then Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When you start leading in a church, you move up on the hit list of the dark forces of this world and you will be attacked. Some of you are being attacked right now. And the attacks has, have many forms, and our enemy does not play nice. He will start in your mind, all kinds of attacks in your mind. Um, lies about other people, uh, lies about just negativity, he'll cause you to question your your calling, uh, your effectiveness. Uh, he will work to isolate you from other people where he can then destroy you and then ultimately destroy the church and then destroy all the people in the church. And so it's very important that you have prayer, that you surround yourself with prayer and you get prayer. In the very early days of the vineyard, when Probably almost nobody in this room was around then, maybe a few. I can't see the back very well. There might be some hiding in the back who were here in the Wimber days. But uh, John Wimber would bring teams to do these massive conferences. So we would, there would be like two, three, four thousand people in a big arena. And then he would bring teams of people from different vineyard churches in the States to be the ministry team. And so, you know, there'd be like 20 churches, people from this church and 20 people from that church, and he'd, and he'd bring like four or 500 people uh, to be the ministry team with him when he's doing these big conferences. So when people say they traveled with Wimber, understand that that does not mean they were ever in the same car. They were one of 500. <laughs> but here's what would happen almost every time. At some point in that first week, Somebody on our team would be attacked spiritually in their mind. And the way it would go would be, nobody you're praying for getting healed. You never should have come. God's not really with you. The Holy Spirit's not in you. Nobody actually likes you. And you just see them slide off to the back and, and start standing in the corners and not participating. In fact, one vineyard pastor was so overwhelmed, he literally went back to Heathrow Airport, got on a plane, and went home. And we came to know that this was gonna happen and that it was a spiritual attack, and we just told everybody, it's gonna happen, and when it happens, you have to tell somebody. 
And as soon as you tell somebody, we're going to get around you and we're going to pray against the attack. And I'll tell you what, every time when we prayed against the attack, it was like popping a soap bubble. It's just like, you didn't have to pray very long. It's just like, boom. Once you focus attention on it, it's gone in a flash. And, they're, and it's sort of like they were under a spell. All of a sudden, all those doubts, all that negativity is just completely gone, and they're back in business. And what I'm telling you is the same thing happens to you. And when it happens to you, you just need to tell somebody and get them to pray for you. And it can be popped so easily because we have authority over all the power of the evil one. You understand that, right? Luke 10, if you're not sure where the Bible talks about it. Luke chapter 10. We have authority over all the power of the evil one. It's not that hard, but you have to actually do something about it. So you have to be prayed. I can't tell you how many times I was calling somebody up, one of my staff or one of my fellow pastors, and saying, I'm under mental attack right now. I'm feeling really negative. I know it's the evil one. Please pray for me. And they would pray, and in about half an hour, I would be completely restored. I'd be completely free and ready to go. And, but if I didn't pray, I'd be like being crushed by that thing, you know. And I think sometimes we don't pray, and then we're just crushed week after week after week after week. And eventually you get to where you say, I can't go on. And you call it burnout, but it's not. It's just you got attacked and you didn't use your weapons. So get your intercessors praying for you and tell your friends when you're under mental attack. Um, that will be key to surviving. And I think a huge number of the people that didn't make it, as I look back at what happened to those people, an awful lot of them, I'm pretty sure, were simply taken out by the spiritual attack that the enemy launched against them and they didn't get prayed for and became a casualty that didn't have to happen. Three, always ask for help and advice. No matter what role you have in the church, you should always be continually having at least two or three or four people that are just a little bit ahead of you that you're going to and asking for help and advice. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. You know, there are some people <clears throat> who aren't very good at returning communication. You understand what I mean? You know, you send them an email and you'll never hear back. You call them up and they never return the phone call. Don't waste your time on those people. Figure out who are the people that always answer things and go to them. Okay, go to them and just get a regular bunch of people like that you just regularly go back to the same people. They'll get to know your story. They'll get to know the, the way things are and you're just constantly getting help and advice from them. And it's very useful if it's somebody that's like just one or at the most two steps ahead of you. Don't necessarily go to the person that's 10 steps ahead of you because what they're doing won't relate enough to what you're doing. But somebody who's just a little bit ahead and constantly be asking them for help and advice. It will help you get through the hard times. And in particular, 
if there's a major attack against your credibility, your character, or your position by somebody in the church, get advice quickly. And by quickly, I mean in the next two hours. Get advice, because in those situations, you have to move quickly. Or if um, uh, there's a significant moral failure among your leadership, again, instantly, you need to get advice from somebody that's been through it before, how to handle it, or, or even just a significant accusation against somebody. And, you know, we all wish that we were immune from having to deal with those situations, but the truth is nobody's immune. And uh, we're dealing with people, and people are people, and they're, they're all sinners, and they're all broken, and things happen. And so you're, when those things happen, you're going to need to get help. All right, number four, when it gets hard, remember the goodness of God. There's a funny thing that happens. You know, uh, every church seems to get one person who can never be satisfied and is very loud. And the problem is you can get your entire well-being wrapped around trying to make that person happy or trying to fend off their criticisms and get so focused on them that you've forgotten about the other, as it were, 99% of your people who love what's going on and wish you would pay them more attention. One of the things John Wimber used to say to us, and he said this to us over and over and over, he said, feed what you want, starve what you don't want, and you feed and you starve by what you pay attention to. Are you listening? So make sure you're paying attention to the people that you want more of. And be thankful for them and focus on them, and don't let the cranks control you indirectly or control your emotional well-being or even control how you think you're doing. Um, and I'll just tell you just a little kind of parenthetic secret. There is such a thing as praying people out of your church. That is very necessary if your church is going to grow. No church can grow without losing certain people. Some of you are smiling. You know what I mean. And the rest of you will find out the hard way. <clears throat> but prayer, again, is an important tool. You don't have to kick them out. You don't have to make a scene. You don't have to do anything. Just secretly pray them out. And they'll get a job transfer or something that the Lord will send to help you out. Okay, um, so remember what God's done. Keep giving thanks. I, I went through a period where I was very disappointed in God because we were trying to get this building and it didn't wasn't happening and we got involved in a long legal fight with the planning commission and, you know, I guess the, the equivalent would be like, what do you guys call them, the council? Or, you know, whatever, something equivalent to that. And uh, I was pretty 
upset. I used to like drive around town and I'd see the Buddhist temple and the Muslim mosque and I'd say, you know, you, you know, you give like buildings to every false religion and even the cults. You know, the Christian scientists got a building and the Jehovah's Witnesses got a building, but to us, you give nothing. God and I had many arguments along that line. And, and uh, during that time, you know, I got really depressed. I was really depressed. I was really struggling. And one of the things that helped me uh, uh, get out of that was uh, I had a sabbatical that came in that time. And so during the sabbatical, I couldn't go to my own church. And so I had to go to a different church on Sunday. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I started this church so I could have a church I liked. So I'm not going to find another church I like. But maybe I could find another church I could learn from. So I started going to different churches. And one of the first churches I went to was a black church in town. And the pastor gets up, and the first words out of his mouth Sunday morning were, somebody died last night, but you didn't. So you can give thanks to God this morning. And it was like, I felt like that was just for me. It was like God just spoke to me. Like, you know, like you didn't die. You know, you're still alive. You can be thankful to God. And I found that by giving thanks to God, I was restored to sanity. I started like trying to give thanks to God every day, like taking a vitamin. And it was helpful. In the beginning, it was pretty basic. You know, like I didn't die last night and I can walk. And uh, it was quite a while before I could be thankful for the church um, because I was still upset about the building thing. Oh, by the way, in a completely miraculous way that we don't have time to go into, but an amazing miracle, we ended up with the biggest building of all the churches in town with the most parking of any church within miles. And when we got to the end, you know, I rolled it back and said, could we have gotten here some easier way? And I realized, no. Like, the, the process we went through, as painful as it was, had to happen so we could end up in that place. So remember the goodness of God. And uh, get around people who help you remember the goodness of God. I'll tell you a little secret just between you and me. Part of the way I got through the pandemic was listening to gospel music, black gospel music. Uh, they were talking about this this morning a little bit, but I thought they didn't say nearly enough about black gospel music in that there's a, there's a theme in, in that kind of music of the goodness of God in the midst of your suffering. And I found that really, really helpful during the lockdown time. I like listened to nothing else. Um, all right, number five. It's important to balance your life. Like you gotta balance your life if you're gonna uh, manage well and get all the way through the end. And there's several different aspects to that. Number one, you've gotta have something that you like doing that's not church. Like, if your whole life is church, you're gonna just kind of be misshapen. You're gonna be kind of weird. You know, it's just gonna, it's not, you, it's not quite healthy. You know, like, you need to have something. You need to have a hobby or a sport or something 
something you like doing that you can do with other people that's not church. And a lot of times it's helpful, actually, if some of those people you hang out with aren't in your church. <laughs> um, you know, who are just your friends because they're your friends. <laughs> um, it's fine if they go to another church, but sometimes it gets complicated when they're in your church. So just make sure there's, there's got to be some space in there for renewing activities, whatever they are for you, uh, that you can do. Um, that's not just church. So that's the first part. And the second part of balancing your life is um, you need to balance out sort of the percentage of time in which you are working within your gifting. Inevitably, in leadership, there's a, there's, a, there's a certain amount of things you have to do that aren't in your gifting and that you don't love, and it's just like cleaning the toilets. Just stuff that you have to do, like the exit interviews with people who've decided to leave the church. Nobody likes that. <laughs> All right, so you, there's a certain amount of that. But it, you can't have that percentage of that kind of thing get too high. You have to be working within your gifts. So, for example, if your main gifts have to do with evangelism, but you're spending half of your time in administration, you're going to be an unhappy camper. Like, you know, uh, I've known some people that are, you know, they have more of evangelistic gifting, and I just say, you have to set aside a certain amount of time for you to, like, work in the evangelistic gifting so that at least the majority of their of your time, you're working in the realm of things you're good at and that you enjoy doing. Um, so sometimes part of the balance is you need to adjust your job description a little bit. Um, now, if you're in the first stages of church planting, that doesn't count. Because in the first stages of church planting, you have to do everything. But that puts a fire under you to build that church up a little bit so you can start having teams that specialize. Okay, so in, in the beginning, you have to do everything, but it's not meant to stay that way. Um, another part of balancing your life is you gotta balance your time. And uh, the, the simple thing is you have to make big decisions, not small decisions. And what I mean by that is you need to sit down and make big decisions about what your pace of life is going to look like and then make small decisions within those parameters. So, for example, when we were raising our kids, Cindy and I would have a meeting every year, at the beginning of every year, and we would discuss what is our pace of life going to be this year in regards to where we're at, where our kids are at, what their needs are, and so forth. And we would discuss, like, how many nights I was going to be working and how many trips I would go on and, you know, how many meetings I would have and, you know, how many hours I would work, all of that. We made all those decisions ahead of time. And we would carve everything out. So, like, Family time would be put on the calendar ahead of time before anything else in the year happened. And the vacation time and the days off, they'd all get put in ahead of time. Then the church stuff had to fit in to whatever was left over. Um, and that meant that sometimes the things on the to-do list for the church 
had to get put off to the next week or the next month. And I'll tell you something. In ministry, particularly those of you who are in paid ministry, you, you're like on staff, you're paid by your church, you need to understand that you're never going to get to the end of the to-do list. It's never going to happen. Not till they like rip that thing out of your hands and put you in the ground. You know, it's, <laughs> it's you're, otherwise you're never going to get to the end of it. So you have to set an arbitrary stop. Like when we get to this point, I'm stopping. And then that sermon will just have to be good enough. Or I'll just have to meet with that person the next week. Or whatnot. Okay? You understand? And one other thing about this, making big decisions. It's very important in ministry. Don't run as fast as you can in normal time. Because the nature of ministry is public service. We're public servants. And that means that we end up helping people handle crises. And you can't predict when a crisis is going to happen. And if you run as hard and as fast as you can all the time in normal time, when the crisis comes, you got nowhere to take it from. You've got no margin in emotionally. You've got no margin in your calendar, in your time. And so what you're going to do is you're going to take it out of your own well-being. You'll, you'll like not spend that much time with God. Or you'll take it out of your family time. And all of that's going to have negative consequences. You should be running about between 80 and 90% of your capacity in normal time. Not 100%. Definitely not over 90% of what you're capable of, having made your big decisions. Then when a crisis comes, you've got some room. It's all going to even out in the end. You're not going to be cheating the church. It's all going to even out in the end. When the crises come, you, you put in the extra time, and then when the crisis is over, you back it off. And you, you recharge, reset, get back into normal time so that when the next crisis comes, you're ready for it. All right. Six, invest your time with teachable people. Invest your time with teachable people. Um, you know, most of us are in ministry because we want to see people's lives changed. And there are some people who are teachable. They like they want to learn from you. And it's very renewing because it's very close to our whole motivation for being in this to be able to help them and teach them. Um, don't spend too much time on people who don't want to learn from you um, because it won't work. You know, find the ones who are teachable and spend your time with them. All right, number seven. Get angry enough to stand firm. Like, there are points where you just need to be angry. Okay? Um,
when Trump got elected, hopefully the first and only time, uh, there, we had a problem with a few people in our church because they loved Trump. And uh, I got up in church and said, you know, like, hey, this church is about ministering to the poor, and we're going to keep doing that. And this church is about taking care of refugees. We've been taking care of refugees for 30 years. We're going to keep doing that. This church is about tearing down walls between people. We're going to keep doing that. We're not putting up walls. We're not, we're, we're uh, you know, we're not putting up walls. We're tearing down walls between people. And just made it really clear, like, where we stood. It doesn't matter who got elected president. This is where we are. Because we stand for the kingdom of God. And they were put out. A couple, small number of people were put out by what I had to say. And uh, I basically just told them, like, you need to go. Like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Like, just get out of here. We don't want you. You know, because this the, you're you're not going where we're going. Um, part of it was they're Christian nationalists, and it's like the worst form of idolatry. And uh, it's it's uh, in my opinion, they're not even really Christians as we would understand it. Um, so, you know, there there are points where you just need to be angry. You know, like no, we're not doing that. No, we're not going that way. You know, um, we know what we're called to. We know who we're following. We know what he said, and we're going to stay the course. You know, you, you have to be angry. And the devil will try to get to you by saying you always have to be nice. I don't believe that for a minute. There are some people you need to not be nice to because the devil will send wolves into your church, divisive people, you should not be nice to them. That could be a whole talk by itself, but we'll rush, we'll go on. Okay, number eight, how to keep leading when life feels hard. Adjust your expectations. You know, uh, sometimes the reason life gets hard is because we had expectations that weren't fulfilled, you know, I thought that in four years we would have a megachurch and instead we have 200 people. Like you actually have a good church. You have a great church. It's self-sustaining. You've got a great community. People are being discipled. People are being healed. People are coming to Jesus. But because your expectations were for something else, now you're disappointed and discouraged because you had these expectations. Um, you need to adjust your expectations to what God has for you now. Um, beware of, you know, expectations that can be disappointed. Um, because that's a place where the devil can do his work in your heart and in his mind, in your mind. You know, whatever, you know, you're expecting, you know, you need to hold lightly. Um, you know, we expect God to be at work, but we don't get to dictate exactly what that looks like. You know, our whole game is, like Jesus, see what the Father's doing and do that. 
And if you can see what the Father's doing and do that, those things will work. But it may not fit your other expectations that you had. So be ready to adjust them. Remember, in terms of expectations, that all leaders, all of us, experience sufferings and betrayals and disappointments. You know, you will be betrayed by people you thought had your back. You will be disappointed. Not all your prayers will be answered. Um, the kingdom of God is here, but not fully here. It's already, but not yet. You know, this is all part of it. Jesus told us this was a lot part of it. He told us we would be betrayed. He told us that... Um, you know, we'd be disappointed that we would suffer. We just don't like believing it. But you need to actually, like, move your expectations to where, like, okay, that's part of the expectations of what our life is like. Um, then when it happens, it doesn't take you out. Um, expectations founded on a desire for the approval of man or selfish ambition are particularly deadly. Um, I've seen some really wonderful leaders destroyed, and I mean destroyed, because they desired approval or they desired fame. They had an ambition you know, for a particular position. Um, I can probably count up a half a dozen that were destroyed because they had an ambition to lead their national movement and it didn't happen. Somebody else got picked. And they gotten their expectations wrapped around that so tight that when it happened, they couldn't deal with it. And those kind of expectations are deadly. When you find yourself expecting, like I deserve X because I have suffered or because I have served for so long, I've been here these many years, I deserve X, watch out. Watch out for those expectations. You know, one of the chief ways people uh, fail morally is they start having this, this sort of conversation in their head where it's sort of like, I've sacrificed so much for the church. I've sacrificed so much for ministry. I deserve to feel good for a few minutes. I deserve to have a slight exception to the normal rules. And then the devil's got you. So beware about your expectations. Um, you know, uh, there's a, a book called uh, Heroic Leadership, which was very helpful to many of us in the U.S. I don't know if, it, if it's made its way over here. It's a book about the, the uh, Jesuit model of leadership. And one of the uh, concepts in there is the Jesuits have this concept of reaching with Jesus a submission of all our expectations so that we become indifferent to how he uses us. 
or how it works out. It matters not whether what we do is, seems to be fruitful or not, or whether it seems to be successful or not. We become indifferent to how he uses us. The only question becomes, am I faithful to what he's called me to do? And you become indifferent to everything else. And there's a power in that because when you come to that place, you can't be controlled by ambition or by any other person or by people's approval. Um, it is very simply all about Jesus, none about you, all about obeying him and nothing about what comes out of it. At the very beginning of my life in the vineyard, um, I had an experience alone with God in the warehouse in Anaheim. Back when they were meeting in the warehouse, there were about 3,000 chairs. And to make a long story short, I ended up on the ground there alone with God in that room for three and a half hours with intense fire running up and down my body uh, over and over and wave after wave after wave. And uh, so intense, I thought I was going to die if it got any stronger. And I was screaming. And uh, what it was all about was God burning out all fear of what other people thought. Um, he hated that with incredible intensity. And if you have any fear about what people think, if that whole thing about how people are thinking about you has any hook in you, you need to find a way to kill that sucker dead. Because if you don't, it'll kill you. It'll destroy ministry. You won't make it to the end. Um, because it's, it's really hell to live that way, to live constantly in fear of, of what people are going to think and are trying to get their approval all the time. Um, that needs to die. And then finally, kind of along the same line, I'd say number nine, how to keep leading when life feels hard? Surrender your destiny to God. Surrender your destiny to God. Give up your rights. The only right I see that we have in Jesus is the right to love one another. There are no other rights. You know, and those who are dead to themselves cannot be moved. Those who are dead to themselves cannot be moved. It's, there's a... A story I love about the Moravians, they were people 300 years ago who had experienced a tremendous outpouring of the Spirit. And they understood this principle of like, you know, you die to, Christ, to yourself so that Christ can live through you. And they were on a ship on their way to the indigenous peoples of uh, North America. And there was a storm and it was so severe that even the sailors were crying out and they were all afraid and people were you know, crying and shaking. And the Moravians were calmly singing hymns and having their normal Sunday service. And there was a young man on the ship who saw that and was very impressed. His name was John Wesley. <laughs> and that ultimately led to Wesley's conversion and then the whole Methodist movement. But the thing about it was that struck him was how fearless the Moravians were. They were utterly fearless. Because, and the reason was because they considered themselves already dead. Like, we do not fear death. We're already dead. We've, we've got something better already. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Okay, we've got a few minutes left. We, I think, can take a few questions if you have questions. And there's a guy with a mic who will come to you with the mic, and you can give your question in the mic, and then I'll try to answer it. So you mentioned that you could do a whole talk about um, getting angry enough to stand firm. Can you recommend any resources for further reading about, about that? No. You know, it's weird to me, but it seems to me like most of what's being written about these days is about trying to be nicer people and not fighting. When part of me just feels like, wait a minute, like right when we need to fight, that's when we're going to stop? So anyway, no, I, I can't recommend anything. Hi. Um, here in the UK, we had a Welsh revival, but it died down because people said that people who were converted weren't reading the Bible well, weren't um, getting the word of God deeply in their heart and soul. Would you recommend to pastors and leaders that w one of the ways to survive is to get into the, God's written word and immerse yourself, their cells into it so that when the day of trouble comes, you know what God, God's word says in the situation? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, one of the first things that goes when people are, like, losing faith is they stop reading the Bible. So I, I do think, you know, you should be meditating on the Bible regularly as part of just surviving. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I will say, I will add, on the Welsh revival, I think it ended more because Evan Roberts was was bewitched by a, an emissary of the devil, and he withdrew from the process prematurely and didn't uh, take seriously enough his role as a fire starter in that revival. And I think that's why it ended. But. Okay, somebody else? Steve, you mentioned about bearing with one another. Could you maybe give us some advice around friendships beyond our immediate leadership teams and how we best, like the kind of people that we should be looking to to bear with, um, both within our teams and how, how much do we kind of go there and then who beyond the team should we be looking to in terms of maybe a mentor? Right, I think uh, definitely if you have a team, you know, a, a team that you recruited, like you were, that's your first stop in terms of getting support and bearing each other's burdens. 
one of the most difficult situations to be in is to be planting a church and it's just you and your spouse and there's no team with you. So then what do you do? Um, so certainly have start with the team. The next stop would be other vineyard pastors in your area or near you that you connect with um, or that you have something in common with. Um, the UK is small enough that you could potentially easily connect with pretty much anybody in the vineyard movement in the UK and Ireland. Um, and uh, I just think, you know, you, you come to these kinds of things and make friends, and then they become the people that you go to. Um, one of the things that helps is doing some projects with other, other leaders, like sharing in some of the projects, whatever it might be, whether it's worship or youth or something else. One of the side benefits of that is that you actually deepen your relationships. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, like generally you have area meetings, you're getting together on a regular basis. Like that should be a place where you get support. We, in Chicago, we have an area, I, I'm, I no longer go because my successor now is going, but uh, when I was leading the church, I went and there were like 10 of us in this area from 10 different churches. And we would meet together once a month and we would have dinner together. And then we'd just go around the room and everybody would share one thing that was a victory and one thing that was really hard that we needed prayer, prayer for. And then we prayed for each other. And it was very powerful and really helpful. And I'll just add one other thing, you know, particularly if, if, for whatever reason, you know, there's nobody close to you, uh, you know, um, that can do that with you. You know, it could happen with some of the, some, some other fellow pastors from other movements even, you know, that could be a part of that support system. Generally, it's hard to get the support you need from people who aren't themselves in ministry because they don't understand the dynamics and the nature of our life as leaders in the church. All right? Somebody else. Hi, what do you think the most effective form of evangelism is at the moment, please? Inviting people to church on Sunday and having them get zapped by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> really? Hello, um, what would your advice be in terms of key ways of leading change as a leader and bringing about change if there's a particular example you have maybe in your own church of a big change you've had to lead and you've had to take people on that journey? Any advice? In five minutes. <laughs> Let's see. Well, I think... You know, you have, to, you have to start with the leaders and you have to process with leaders what, what change is being contemplated and why. And, um, and it's very important in the early stages to get all your leaders on board that they would, because they have to become apologists for the change. So... They need to understand not just that it's happening, but why. What, what does not help is 
if people go out of the meeting and they say, well, so-and-so's insisting on this change, but I don't know why it's happening. Like, that's trouble right there, okay? That's what you don't want to have happen. You, you've got to have complete unanimity at the leadership level. That means with your staff team, with your trustees or your whoever your ministry council is, they all need to be in pretty much unanimous agreement if you're going to have change. And then you have to let people ask questions about it and you introduce it and you have to answer a lot of, you have a lot of forums where people can ask questions. Generally, when there's change, 80% of the people don't care about the strategy. All they care about is how does this affect me? And so you have to answer that question. How does it affect me and why should it happen? Um, there will always be some people who resist all change, except the last one, which they will hold on to firmly as if it was the longest tradition in the world. And then the next time there's another change, they'll do the same thing again. They just, they just run a whole phase behind everybody else. And that's all right. Usually those people are really good at giving money, so don't chase them off. You know, be nice to them. Okay. We're almost out of time. Maybe one more. You made me smile when you talked about the first few years where you do everything, but don't stay there, because it's felt a little bit like that coming out of the pandemic and rebuilding and going back in time to that kind of planting thing. And I've been thinking recently about um, I don't know who said it first, but don't do everything right. Just work on the right things. And so I'm in that, like, trying to discern, well, what, does it, what are those right things right now? And I just wondered, like, if we could only do one or two things in this moment as we rebuild our churches, what do you think those critical things are? Okay, that's great. One of the things I always say, and she's referring to something I said in another context, I think, that in the end, your fruitfulness is not determined by doing everything right. It's determined by doing the right things. And those are very different. The right things are, number one, praying. Like praying. Like praying for each other, but also intercessory prayer. Praying for God to move. Praying for God to uh, move in the church, move in the city. That kind of prayer. So number one right thing is prayer. Number two, preach the gospel. Like, actually preach the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came to take this world back and make right everything that's wrong. He's in the process of making new all things. He's already invaded, and his kingdom is here at work among us, even now as we speak. And it's a down payment on what is coming. That's good news. We, you can't say it enough times. You need to just preach it again and again and again and again. So preach the gospel. Um, three, uh, get people into the Bible. Like they need to become disciples. They need to understand what it is. So like one of our challenges right now is people generally don't read, period. Um, so how do you get them reading the Bible? Um, we found that when the whole church does the thing, like we're all gonna read this book together, that works better. Um, you know, but find some way to 
get people into the Bible. Um, because increasingly they don't know the Bible, and because they don't know the Bible, um, they struggle to live the way that Jesus would want them to live. Um, people need to help people get into relationship and then, and then help people discover their gifts and find a place to serve where they can become everything that God want, wants them to be. You know, it, in, the, in the pandemic, almost every church I've, I've talked to said that they've got a bunch of new people. There were, there's a big fringe that disappeared and they weren't giving anything much anyway. They were like parasites anyway, so they're gone now. But in the meantime, other people have been coming into the church and they're hungry and they wanna be involved and they're coming like every week instead of once a month. Like, get them serving, get them involved, give them a place. Maybe you don't know them that well, take a few risks on them. Um, but get them involved in the process. And, uh, you know, if you do those things, that's like oh, five things, you'll, you'll reap a harvest. You will reap a harvest. Don't give up. Good things come to the, those who are faithful over the long haul. Thank you, guys. Time's up.